All right, Acts chapter 14. Turn with me to Acts 14, and we'll pick up where we left off. I guess we'll actually back up a little bit. We'll do chapter 13, the last few verses of chapter 13 to refresh where we were. Acts 13, we'll look at 48 to 52, the end of the chapter. Acts 13, starting at verse 48. Does someone want to read those five verses for us? 48 to the end? Okay. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored uh, the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust from their feet and protested against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. All right, so what we have going on here in Acts 13 and the chapters to follow is Paul is on his missionary journeys. He's got his companion whose name is... Barnabas. Barnabas. What's? Well, yeah, they called him Barney Fife. No, Barnabas. You got Andy and Barney. Uh, what? Uh, what's Barnabas's real name? Do you remember that? How's that for some Bible trivia? Joseph, I think. <laughs> Joseph. Pretty sure it's Joseph. But why did they call him Barnabas? Go ahead. Son of encouragement. That's what Barnabas means. So you've got Paul and Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And what we're going to see today is that uh, Barnabas wasn't the lead guy. He was more of the, the sidekick for Paul. We're going to see that Paul was the main speaker and that Barnabas uh, didn't talk as much, but he was certainly an encouragement to Paul on these journeys. And it said there in verse 48 of chapter 13 that who heard Paul and Barnabas speaking? What group of people? Gentiles. And that's a big deal. The gospel going to the Gentiles. Now this word sometimes refers to those who are not Jewish at all, who um, are just pagan people. And sometimes it refers to Jews who have been Hellenized, Jews who have taken on Greek culture. But in this case, in 1348, it's talking about non-Jews. And that's a really big deal. It's a new thing in the New Testament. What's so new about the New Testament? Well, salvation's not just for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles. And who stirred up trouble there at the end of chapter 13 when the Gentiles believed? The Jews. The Jews stirred up trouble, and this is going to be a pattern. You do well to memorize that. Gentiles hear and rejoice, and then the Jews come along and stir up trouble. We're going to see that over and over and over again. And in fact, we're going to see it today in the first two verses of chapter 14. Who would read chapter 14, verses 1 and 2? Okay. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. All right, so I've got the section that we're going to cover tonight. The first half of chapter 14, I have it in three sections. And the first section is just, The gospel has always had enemies with great cultural influence. 
And in the book of Acts, that's largely the Jewish people. You see here in chapter 14 that they went to the synagogue again. That's kind of been their MO as they go to these new cities. The first place they head is to the synagogue where the Jews are gathered. And it says that as they spoke there, Jews and Greeks believed, meaning Hebrew Jews and those Greekified Jews, Hellenistic Jews, that they believed um, there in the synagogue. Why did they believe according to that verse? Look at verse 1. What made them believe? Uh, yeah, it says in the ESV, they spoke in such a way. What Any other translations out there? They spoke how? In such a manner. In such a manner, okay. Such a way, such a manner. Effectively. Effectively. Okay. Now let's define what this means, because uh, you could read that. You could envision a scenario where you read that and think, well, there must be a certain way to go about sharing the gospel that makes somebody believe because they did it obviously they were persuasive you could look at it almost like uh sales you know how you get trained for sales to have certain approaches and well they must have learned a good sales pitch well we learn in the new testament that that's not what's going on it's not that they had persuasive speech in fact paul explicitly says we did not have persuasive speech. And let's look at that together. It's in 1 Corinthians. So keep your finger here, but turn forward right past the book of Romans. You have 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. How did they speak in such a way that it was effective? Well, let's look at that. Someone want to read for us 1 Corinthians 2 verses 1 through 5. Who can get that for us? Okay. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of the power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. All right, so we learn in that section, this is the same Paul that went preaching in Iconium at the synagogue. He says to the Corinthians, I didn't come with persuasive speech. So what's going on there in the synagogue is not that Paul and Barnabas are speaking in a persuasive way, but instead they were given a special gift for gospel proclamation. They were able to speak and proclaim the gospel in a special way because of God's special gifting on their ministry that demonstrated His power. You see what Paul said at the end of that passage that Dean just read? Why did he not come in persuasive speech? Why did he come in the power of God? So that their faith wouldn't rest on the wisdom of men, but their faith would rest on the power of God. So, there's sometimes people think, well, I can't go, you know, proclaiming the gospel. I don't speak very well. That's like what Moses said, right? He had a stutter. I can't do it. I can't do it. Well, that would be a very fitting excuse if we believe that gospel proclamation rested on the power of men. But we believe that gospel proclamation rests on the power of who? God. And he uses 
the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. So, is anyone weak? Anyone foolish? You're qualified for gospel proclamation. There you go. <clears throat> if you're not qualified for anything else, you're qualified for that, okay? And there was opposition, of course, to this persuasive uh, speech by God's power. Um, there was opposition. Chapter 2, it says the unbelieving Jews. So now we have a distinction between believing Jews and unbelieving Jews. The unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Notice how this is very political. It's people versus people. That's the aspect, uh, the main aspect of this strategy. And we see that all throughout the New Testament, and we see that in our churches today. We see that in our uh, interactions in the community today, that we're looking to put people against people. This is called tribalism. And do you think that's going on in our country today? We just prayed about our country, and yeah, people versus people to cause division. And what people did the Jews stir up? It says the Gentiles. Which Gentiles do you think? If you remember what was just read as Rex read the recap from the end of the last chapter, I bet it's the same playbook. Look, it says in verse 50 of chapter 13, they went out and incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city and stirred up persecution. So they went out and they uh, stirred up the magistrates, the leaders of the city. This is a Roman province, Iconium. So they had Roman leaders. So the Jews go out and they find the Roman leaders and they start talking smack on Paul and Barnabas and this new wave of Christians. And they get the leaders of the city to turn on Paul and Barnabas. And that's just, you know, it's, it's simple thinking. How do we stop this movement? Well, let's get them arrested or let's get them the death penalty. Let's get them thrown in uh, some sort of a dungeon and, where they can't spread the gospel anymore. So that's the whole strategy by these Jews. And, uh, and it still goes on today in many countries around the world. How do you think, now just in these two verses... Considering their scenario, how do you think a community of Christians should respond to this type of persecution? Uh, think of, put yourself in Paul and Barnabas' situation, or as one of the converts from Paul and Barnabas. The whole city, words going around the whole city, because the, the main religion, the Jewish people, they're going and talking to the city council and the mayor, and they're saying, look, uh, get those people to stop. Um, they're an evil people. They get together and do evil things. They must be stopped. How should Christians respond in that kind of scenario? Praise God. How? <laughs> praise God by getting in a bunker? Uh, praise God by making yourselves louder? What do you think? Well, yeah, you gotta speak over it. So. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, Well, it depends on the circumstances, I think. But, um, I think that you do it with humbleness and respect, but um, sometimes you have to call out error when you see it, when you're in that particular situation. I'm just sort of blathering, so 
Okay, <laughs> all right. <laughs> okay, so uh, one option perhaps would be to address it head on, boldly, uh, that persecution by saying the persecution's wrong, saying that the people are wrong for doing it. Ask if they want to worship Jesus too. Invite them to church. Like the blind guy did. <laughs> Do you want to follow Jesus too? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What about get out of Dodge? Is that an option? <laughs> That's a tough one because you think, where's the line that you need to stand there and hold your ground to be faithful or leave? And we're going to see that in our lesson today. Let's see the, the first thing that they did. Look at the first part of verse 3. What does it say? What did they do? A long time and doing what? Speaking <laughs> yeah, speaking boldly. Okay, all right. So we'll move on to the next section here. But I think we can see from the first two verses, the gospel has always had enemies with great cultural influence. You see that in just those two verses, and you see it over and over again in the Book of Acts, and you see it over and over again in church history. Uh, a lot of times, the leaders of a nation or a state or a city don't like. The gospel. Okay, well, let's read verses 3 through 7. Who would take that chunk for us? Chat, verse 3 through verse 7. Go ahead. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lycaonian cities of Lystra and Derby, and to the surrounding countries where they continued to preach the good news. All right. What's their mission according to verse 7? Preach the good news. Preach the gospel. So no matter where they were, they were preaching the gospel. Well, we see, um, verse, look at verse 3 again. It says they remained there a long time speaking boldly. And we see their manner of speaking there in verse 3, that they were relying on who? Relying on the Lord. And they were uh, doing signs and wonders. There were signs and wonders performed by their hands. That's the type of speaking that they had. So when it says back in verse 1, they spoke in such a manner, that manner was reliance on Jesus and by performing signs and wonders, the power of God. They're relying on the power of God who's working special signs through them that gave power to their testimony of the gospel. And uh, the point here in this section is that the gospel has always been divisive. The gospel has always been divisive. And we see a word uh, in this text, it's much clearer in the Greek, it's the word schism. It says in verse 4, the people of the city were Divided. That's where we get our word schism. Now, if the apostles were speaking with great power, and they were speaking in such a way that many turned to the Lord, why didn't all turn to the Lord? If they were performing signs and wonders, if it was such a manner that many believed, why didn't all believe? Wouldn't that be a perfect display that they are from God speaking the words of God? Well, that sounds harsh. 
that just sounds kind of rough. Do you have do you have strong biblical evidence that when hearing the gospel, only the chosen will believe? Let me show you one passage that you might not think of. Again, keep your finger here. Go to 1 Thessalonians. So turn forward through Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And let's look at verses 2 through 5. This gives us really great detail about how that initial believing comes about. Because you're, you're reading the narrative in Acts 14. The narrative says, look, they, they went and they preached. They had signs and wonders. It was the power of God. And half of them believed. It didn't say half, but we'll just say for the sake of this. Half of them believed and the other half hated them. Well, why didn't they all hate them? Why didn't they all believe? Well, here it is. Let's look at verses 2 through 5. I'll read this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting at verse 2. Paul says... We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And here it is. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because, what's the evidence? Our gospel came to you not only in word but also in Power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So, what's the evidence that they believed or that they, they were chosen? It's that they believed. Uh, the evidence that, or the reason why they believed, is because they were chosen. The gospel came to them in power. So, the power isn't only in the one speaking. Isn't that interesting? The power of God isn't only in the speaker, but the power of God is in the hearer. If that hearer has been chosen by the Lord, then that hearer has been given the power of God to believe. <clears throat> Pretty interesting stuff, isn't it? And so you, you can make sense out of a narrative like this now, understanding that theology behind it. And you can make sense out of your gospel interactions. Because you've had gospel interactions before where people have responded positively and you probably had a lot more where people responded negatively, haven't you? And you just think, how could a person believe and a person not believe? God's choice. God's choice. Interesting, isn't it? When people believe the gospel, it is evidence of God's sovereign grace. Thoughts or questions on that? Only like a million, right? Anna. <laughs> Yes, because what happens is for a person to have a, a will that's able to submit to God, God has to cause them to be born again. And once you're born, born again, you freely choose. But you have to be born again. Otherwise, you're dead. And dead, dead people can't choose life. Can you define born again? I'm sorry. No, it's fine. Um, born again means to have a, a totally new nature. So the New Testament says... Uh, and the Old Testament, that in our natural state, we are dead in sin. So obviously, uh, in our natural state, we breathe, we walk, we communicate, we go through life. But in 
a very profound way, our wills are enslaved to sin that makes us spiritually dead. Because of the fall, the fall has far-reaching effects because of what Adam did. We are all now born into not only a fallen world around us, but we are born with a fallen nature within us. And we are locked in to that state until God intervenes and causes us to come alive. And when that happens, then we will choose to believe. Well, No. Nope. Could you be born again and not believe? Nope. <laughs> so is believing a choice? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So who gets who gets the credit for you being born into this world physically? Why don't you get the credit? You didn't have a choice. No. <laughs> take physical out of it, put spiritual in, take mom and dad out of it, put your heavenly father in. Praise be to God, 1 Peter 1, 3, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope. There you go. Okay? Other thoughts or questions? Okay. Uh, still in this section, verses 3 through 7, we see that the apostles were threatened with murder. It says in verse 5 that there was an attempt made by both Gentiles and Jews. So we're talking the Roman pagans, those who were uh, in charge in the city and in the surrounding area, and the religious leaders. With their rulers, it says they went to mistreat them and to stone them. This is to murder them. This isn't to slap them on the wrist. This isn't to give them a ticket. This is to kill them, is what they're trying to do. Now, um, something really interesting that is hard to explain, uh, and this will seem like a side issue, but it comes up again in the next section. It says in verse 4 that there were some who sided with the apostles, and then that the leaders went to kill the apostles. Who were the apostles? Plural, in this context Paul and Barnabas was Barnabas an apostle when did, when did Barnabas become an apostle we haven't seen that in the book of Acts have we that, that's a confusing thing look down at verse 14 with me we, this is out of our current section but it says when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it now this is weird because that one's a lot more straightforward. We, the verse 4, you think, well, we can probably come up with some sort of interpretation that gets around it. And verse 14, you can't get around it. When did Barnabas become an apostle? Well, there are two possible solutions to this, and I don't like either option. But um, one option is to say, okay, Barnabas was an apostle, meaning he met the qualifications for an apostle. Do you remember what those are? All the way back in Acts chapter 1? Well, I want to Okay. See the risen Christ, and did anyone say anything besides that? See the risen Christ, and okay, signs and wonders are, are evidence of an apostle. Those come after, but to be qualified to be one, right? <laughs> no, no age. No, it's not like the. Uh, yeah, yeah, someone who was, it, it says in Acts chapter 1, we must replace someone to replace Judas, someone who's been with us up until this point and has seen the Lord. 
So those are the two things. It's possible that Barnabas met those two, and we just don't have that information in the text. That's possible. And after all, his name was Joseph originally, and there were a lot of Josephs in Jesus' day. Okay, that's a possibility. The other option is that when it says apostles here in reference to Barnabas and Paul, it doesn't mean capital A apostles, because that word apostle does have two meanings. Uh, for instance, if um, who was the famous missionary who went to India? Was that Carey, William Carey? Did he go to India? Where did William Carey go? Okay, uh, <laughs> Hudson Taylor went to China. We'll use him as an example. When Hudson Taylor was sent off to China as a missionary, uh, it could be said that he was an apostle to China, a sent one to China, not a capital A apostle. And, and that's, that terminology is used in Greek with that Greek word, but Luke doesn't ever use it that way, it doesn't seem like, and it just seems convenient that we would say that. So I don't know if Barnabas was an apostle or not. It's a, it's a very strange thing. There's a, there's a place in Galatians 2 that makes it sound like James, the half-brother of Jesus, was also an apostle. Um, so you kind of have to wrestle with those passages. I don't really have a good answer for you. Walker. So what if there's like a 12-year-old that believed and saw Jesus? Would he, could he be an there apostle? There were 12-year-olds who believed and saw Jesus. Yeah. Could he be an apostle? Uh, what do you mean, could he be an apostle? Like that 12-year-old at that age. Yeah, um... Just like with appointing elders and deacons, it would be quite foolish to appoint a sixth grader to be uh, in, in leadership. Uh, that, were, that was used, at least in Acts chapter 1, the means that was used to appoint Matthias was the apostles got together and they cast lots, meaning they were appealing to God's will, and God evidently uh, made it evident which one he, just, he wanted them to choose. So, uh, yeah, it wasn't like if you were qualified, then you automatically became one. It was like if you were qualified, um, then the will of God would make that happen. So like with Paul, that, there was obviously uh, no middleman. Jesus met him directly on the road and called him. So anyway. Okay, well, that's just a little side note. I don't know what to do about Paul, uh, Barnabas and apostleship. It's an interesting thing. Uh, what else was I going to say about this? Oh, yeah, it was at this point here. We see that, you know, in verse 5, okay, they're going to try to kill them. And it says in verse 6 that when they learned of it, they bailed, they fled. And this is going back to that question I asked you on the previous passage. How, how do you know when it's okay to leave? <laughs> uh, well, apparently they thought it was okay when they were going to die. <laughs> they had spent a long time there, kind of like back where they dusted their shoes off yep. earlier. Like, you give it so much for a while, and now they're not accepting, and now they want to kill you. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure they prayed about it. And... Yes, and they were apostles after all, so right. perhaps God told them audibly. Um, we don't know. Would that, the casting of before swine, did that? Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, because Jesus gave us that principle, don't cast your pearls before swine. And where's that line? Can someone tell me exactly where that line is when someone becomes a swine? It's different for all of us, isn't it? I can tell you what I've seen. <laughs> yeah. Yep, so it's a tough thing, uh, but this would be a, a point to remember in the Acts narrative. So if someone decides to leave a ministry, maybe don't rush to judgment. Paul and Barnabas, the other people on missionary journey, they left 
ministries at certain times. And we don't have clear-cut instructions on when to do that, um, but they did here. John Mark. Yeah, right. Yeah. And there could have been some in that day that said, no, you need to stay there. And if they kill you, they kill you. That's an argument that some people can make. But they decided to not do that, and it doesn't say they were condemned for that. What about with Paul in the Corinthians? You know, when he said, that's it, you're... Blood's on your own head. I'm out of here. Yeah, yeah. Dust off your shoes. That night, vision, God said, go back to that. Right. It's got to give it a word. Yeah, and I think it's a conscience thing. Since we don't believe God's giving new revelation today, it just comes down to that, that first part, a conscience thing, where we say, look, we're done, and you move on. And uh, those are tough decisions to make. But in their new locations, we see again in verse 7, their goal was the same, to preach the gospel. And they're going to Lystra and Derby. Now, does anybody know the name of the region? We're hearing city names, but does anyone know the name of the region that they're in? Do you know, Walker? Or you have another question? Okay. Was it the region then or now? Um, then. But you know, you've heard of it many times. It's the region of Galatia. So they are, in, they are in the region of Galatia. These churches that are getting started by the proclamation of the gospel, these are the churches that Paul writes to in his very first letter, his letter to the Galatians. Walker. Okay, so... It was there, now it's gone. Oh, gotcha. Okay, so and we're back. What if somebody asks, <laughs> um, why doesn't God just make everybody Christian? And then you say, must to come to him, but... That's not what I would say. Uh, <laughs> every why question, what's the answer? When someone asks, why does God do this? Why does God do that? What's the answer? To bring glory to himself. Why does God do anything? To bring glory to himself. Is that because he's some ego-driven maniac upstairs? No, it's because he's God, and it would be wrong for God to not receive glory. It would be wrong for God to not bring glory to himself in all that he does. Now, it's wrong for us to bring glory to ourselves because we are fallen human beings. We are creatures. So we have to make this separation all the time in our thinking. Because if we make God out to be us, then it's wrong for him to bring glory to himself. But if he is categorically different in every way than human beings, if he is the creator, not the creature then the things that he does will be different than the things that we do. And one of the things that he does, the ultimate thing that he does, is bring glory to himself in all things. Okay. So, because he wants to. He's yes. sovereign. And because it's good, and everything he does it's is good. good. So the reason yeah. he doesn't make everybody Christian is because he wants to bring glory to himself. Because it brings the most glory to himself. Why does God choose to do anything he does? Because that brings the most glory to himself. Because it would be prideful. Um, if we get into the trying to figure it out, down like writing it all out in an outline and making sure we have every I dotted and T crossed, then eventually we'll have our eyes crossed. Uh, so we need to, uh, you know, leave the. This is Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine that I preached on on Sunday. The secret things belong to God, but what is revealed belongs to us. So we focus on what God has said, and we leave it at that. Yeah. What was that? Romans 9. Romans 9, yeah. Yeah, read Romans 9 through 11 and tell me if you get, get to sleep at night. <laughs> It'll keep you up for a while. All right. Any other thoughts or questions before the last passage here? Okay. 
verses 8 through 18, we are going to see that the gospel has always been the power of God to heal and redeem. Let's read this as a uh, total section here, 8 to 18. Who would read that for us? Go ahead, Jerry. Now, this year, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. When a crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Laconian language, The gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and bronze to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifices uh, with the crowds. When the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, what are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from those vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without witnesses, in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven, fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness, even saying these things with difficulty, they restrain the crowd from offering sacrifice to them. Alrighty. So, this scene starts with a miraculous event, and I want you to imagine the scene in your head. It's very similar to what Peter did in chapter 3. Peter healed a lame beggar in chapter 3, and here Paul is doing it. And it says he's been crippled for how long? From birth. What do you think his legs look like? No muscle, right? Never used them. Never once used his legs his whole life. And there he is, lying, lying there probably, with absolutely no muscle in his legs. And it's interesting because they're not in a synagogue in this city. Remember in the last city, they went right to the synagogue? Uh, they're in 14 verse 1 in Iconium. And now at Lystra, they don't go to the synagogue. So that means either there wasn't one there or they were breaking from their typical strategy. Uh, we actually don't see them going to a synagogue again for three chapters. Uh, but here they go to a, a man who's lying there, a crippled man. And it says that he was listening to Paul speaking, verse 9, and Paul looked at him. What a, what a moment this must have been. Paul looked at him, and he saw that this man was looking intently at him, and that he had faith to be made well. Faith to be made well. Let's consider the substance of this man's faith. What did he have faith in? Uh, the easy answer is the Sunday school answer, which is what? Jesus, Jesus right? Okay, he had, he believed, Jesus, that's why he got healed. Um, I think we can put a little more on there. I think he definitely understood that Jesus is Lord. All right, No one has faith 
in the biblical sense, apart from that understanding that Jesus is Lord. But then there's also an aspect where he understood that Paul was chosen by the Lord to do signs and wonders. He had to believe that this man is the Lord's servant. He couldn't just consider this man to be just another man, some guy who's coming along who's just spewing out stuff that's right mixed with stuff that's wrong. He had to understand in that moment to him by the Lord to heal him. That he was a truly an apostle. And we start seeing through this as the man had to recognize Paul's particular gifting. We see through this that there's a very fine line between recognizing God's servant and exalting man. And that's what's going on in the whole scene here. Because not only is the lame beggar seeing this in Paul, but all the people around are seeing this like, oh, Paul, there's something different about Paul. He's got some sort of power here to do these miracles. And uh, there's a fine line between recognizing that and then worshiping that. Worshiping's wrong. Recognizing good. Worshiping bad. Okay? Uh, and that's what gets played out through the rest of this, this uh, section. I do want to note that this crippled man, he didn't just walk, but what did he do? Jumped up. That's the same thing that happened when Peter healed that man in chapter 3. It says he jumped up and then walked. And his legs had how much muscle? <laughs> so that means... It wasn't just he, had, he was given the ability to walk, but God strengthened his legs. And this took, you know, probably some time, right? And a few, few attempts at healing. No, it was instant. The first time Paul says, you're healed, completely healed. That's, this, that's the definition of a biblical miracle. Yeah. Yeah. And and to have the knowledge of how to do it. You think of a toddler walking? Yeah. He'd never walked. I mean, right. his body didn't even know. So, um, yeah, the jump. Yeah, never jumped. <laughs> never stood up. It's an amazing thought. But we see here, of course, uh, you know, you saw the passage. It goes right into man worship. The people around them, uh, you got to consider the culture here. Uh, this is in a place where they had many gods. They're polytheistic. And uh, they, they called Paul and Barnabas Hermes and Zeus, which in uh, the Roman equivalent is Mercury and Jupiter. Uh, those are the Roman gods, and uh, Hermes and Zeus are the Greek gods. And they had legends about these gods, about them coming down in times past, that the gods would come and visit man. So this was already in their thinking. It's in their lore that they've studied. And, of course, their gods demand some sort of homage, some sort of sacrifice be made to them. So they're looking around, and from their worldview, which says there are a bunch of gods out there, and sometimes they come down, and we are to sacrifice to them, they're interpreting what's going on through that worldview. And they're saying, oh, Paul, he talks a lot, so he must be Hermes. Hermes was the, the speaker uh, of, of the gods. Zeus was more of the behind the scenes. Now, he's like the ultimate god, right? You've heard of Zeus. He's more of the quiet behind the scenes constructing all things together. And they must have looked at Barnabas. Maybe he was a little more stout, a little more put together. And thought, oh, he's Zeus. And Paul is Hermes. Um, that's how they understood the world. 
But, uh, of course, that's not what's going on at all. And Paul quickly corrects them. He says, look, we are not gods. It says in verse uh, 15, we are of like nature with you. We are of like nature with you. And this is something to understand as more of a secondary note. This isn't a primary thing to get from this passage, but it, it's important to know in our Mormon context out here. What is Paul doing? He's distinguishing between man's nature and a divine nature. Whereas, what, what does Mormon theology do? Well, it puts them together. We are gods in embryo, according to the Mormon church. Well, that thinking was never uh, taught in Scripture. But instead, they're saying, look, we're not divine. <laughs> we aren't deities. We're like you. And then he goes on to say that there's only one true divine, one true God. Um, another interesting note, before we break this down a little bit more, is that this is the first of just two instances in the book of Acts where the audience is purely pagan. Uh, in Acts 17, you see it also, but this is one of only two instances in all of Acts where the audience is made up of people who don't have any Jewish connection whatsoever and, in fact, are polytheistic pagans. Um, most of the time, it's either Jews, a mix of Jews and Gentiles, um, Greek God-fearers, that sort of thing, and this is purely pagan. So when they go to worship... Paul and Barnabas, what's their immediate response before they even speak? What do they do? Tear their clothes. They tear their clothes. And what does that mean, tearing your clothes? That seems like a like waste of money. Coming undone, or like they do undone in front of yeah, yeah. In Jewish culture, it, yes, it's a, it's a reaction to something that's blasphemous, usually, when they tear their robes and cry out. Usually it's five or six inches down the front is what they would do. Uh, it's a reaction to a horrifying sin, something that is absolutely shocking, that cuts you in your soul. That's how they felt about being praised, like they were some sort of deity. Now you look at the vast scope of religious teachers that are out there, and many are worshipped in one way, shape, or form, and they like it. And the response needs to be just like the angels. When people tried to worship the angels in Scripture, the angels say, don't. We're not God. And we are lower than the angels, Scripture says. How much more should we refuse worship, refuse that sort of praise? Uh, we should certainly uh, be horrified by the thought. And then Paul launches into a sermonette here. That's what I call these little sermons. I've never preached a sermon yet. I don't know what it's like. But uh, it's verses 15 through 18. And there are some basic things that he teaches in this sermon. The first is in verse 15 where he says, Look, we are men of like nature. We're not divine. I already mentioned that. And they're bringing good news that you should turn. That turn is repentance. Repentance is right there at the heart of the gospel. That you can't take your vain things with you when you come to the Lord, but you actually leave them there and turn from them to go to the Lord. That's the gospel message. And it says you're turning to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He teaches them the very first thing about God is that he is creator. 
creator. So in contrast to their polytheistic religion where this God made these things, this God made these things, this God's in charge of this, you know, he's the area manager of, you know, crops, and this God over here is the area manager of thunderstorms and blah, blah, blah. Uh, here he is saying there is but one God, he's a living God, and he has made it all. Their gods were vain things, Paul says, but this God, he is sovereign. And he is sovereign over all things. The second thing that he says in verse 16 is that this God in past generations allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. What do you think that means? He allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. Yeah. That's, that's basically the gist of it. He allowed them to go after their idols and to create their vain things that he just called them out about. Now, does that mean that God withheld judgment? Uh, no, yeah. It's not like, well, they got a pass. Uh, he let them go after and he thought that was good and that didn't need any judgment. They could go make their, their fake gods and worship them and he didn't care. That's not what this is saying. Uh, instead, it's actually more of a a text about judgment. He's allowing them to go after vain things and to store up for themselves judgment against them for their wrongful worship. Actually, should have turned to him. So would they, they would then also their own conscience, or as a result of as a result of their actions or as consequences. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Of their actions. Example, homosexuality, AIDS, yeah. things like that. If you allow them to do it, and those consequences would be probably more of a punishment. Well, and, and they are actually, the people Paul's preaching to are evidence of that he allowed them to create a vast network of a re uh, religious system. On to generation after generation, it has this idea of Zeus and Hermes and all these false gods. He allowed them to go after those things to create their false religion, and these people are just children of that. But how amazing for them that God has chosen to send a couple of messengers with the gospel in this moment, right? Now, we, um, we know that, you know, look at verse uh, 16 again. We know that these past generations who were wandering, that they weren't without about evidence. For God. Nature testifies that there is a God that men suppress that knowledge. Does it say that uh, God's presence is seen by all? Yeah. Yes, it's clear. And it says even within man, not just outside of man, but within man, that God has made it clear to all people. But man by nature, like Andy was saying, suppresses the truth. And Paul goes on to say, look at verse 17. Look, God didn't leave you without a witness. <laughs> he did good by giving you rains, giving you produce, giving you food and gladness. This is what's called common grace. Common grace. Do you remember what Jesus taught about this uh, in Matthew 5? I think it's Matthew 5, 42. Uh, where Jesus said God causes his rain to fall on who? The just, the just and the unjust. Common grace. So even those who refuse him, even those who reject the truth that is evident within them and go after 
false gods, the Lord is still very gracious to them, isn't he? He gives them, it says at the end of this verse, gladness. They can experience gladness in this life. Isn't that an amazing thought? Do they deserve an ounce of gladness? Do we deserve an ounce of gladness? But God, in his grace, allows it. And common grace, though it is enjoyed by man, it's actually a condemning witness to the world if they continue to refuse to worship God. That's for their own condemnation. So in witnessing to our neighbors and proclaiming the gospel to those around us, that's a point you can bring up, common grace. That everything that you have in your life that you've enjoyed, the food in your belly, the sleep you get at night, that is all owed to you in his grace because you didn't deserve it. That's a, something that we don't bring up a lot in our conversations, but it's something that we should. God, uh, Paul brought it up here in this uh, proclamation. That goes back to Romans where he says, you're without excuse. Without excuse. <clears throat> yes, that's it. Yep, even those who had never heard the gospel, they are without excuse. Isn't that that the revelation that we live in, meaning the, the water cycle where rain falls and waters the plants and evaporates back up and condenses in the clouds and all of that, this amazing stuff, the, the fact that we can see and breathe and experience all sorts of things, that is all building up for our condemnation if we refuse God. Because it's all clear, not evidence, clear revelation of God. It's not evidence that he gives so that they, people can make a choice. It's revelation that proves that he's there. People are without a doubt, for sure, 100% believers that God exists. It's a matter of are they going to bend the knee and worship him. It's not a matter of knowledge. All people know that God exists, but not all people worship him. And so this general revelation of nature and our conscience that's enough to condemn us. It's not enough to save us because you can't get saved by looking at the trees. You've got to have the gospel preached to you. That's the means God uses to save his people. But looking at the trees does tell us that God exists. And if we refuse to worship him, that's enough for our condemnation. Renee. That's it. That's it. Yep, yeah, pretty amazing. And these people are so hard-headed that hear this gospel, look what they do. The last verse we'll see tonight, verse 18. Even with these words, they were scarcely restrained. <laughs> they wanted to keep offering sacrifices in their false worldview. <laughs> wow. That shows just how sinful human beings are, right? No, no, no. Uh, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but I still think I should kill this cow. Okay. <laughs> it would be a bull, not a cow, I guess. So, anyway, thoughts to wrap us up here or any questions on chapter 14, 1 to 18? Like you're out working, you say, hey, how was your weekend? Oh, it was really great. 
Glad you enjoyed your common grace. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> Have you bowed your knee before the Father to thank him for that great weekend? There you go. <laughs> uh, what happened to Dean? <laughs> <laughs> Write down a note. Don't talk to Dean. It was terrible. It was the same thing that the, um, the priests and the elders did when Jesus spoke to them in John 8. 8 towards the end. They tore their clothes and picked up stones to to stone him. Right. Because he made himself equal with God. Right. Yeah. Yep. It's amazing enough that they only did one save the lame man. Yeah, right. That's the only one that we hear in this passage that has faith. As the the lame beggar. <laughs> Who now could just walk right in step with Paul and Barnabas right behind him. Isn't that amazing? His feet can get dirty with the rest of them. Hmm. Okay, well, why don't I close us in prayer and we'll stop at 8.01. Father, we again thank you for tonight and for this time together in your word and the amazing demonstration of your power in the lives of these people that we read about, but also in our lives as you have entered our hearts, you've entered in a time in history and you've saved us not by works that we've done, but by the outpouring of your spirit. And we are so thankful. We ask that you would cause us to think biblically about the world around us, that as we leave here tonight and as we go home and go out into the world, that we would be those who think rightly about what's going on around us and within us, that we would honor you in that thinking and that we would seek to praise you in all things, being lights in this dark place, and being servants of you, the Most High God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.